0: This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over i'm jen carpenter the host of so dead podcast in this eight-part series i will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from serial city some so outlandish you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops welcome to the serial killer chronicles a so dead miniseries thank you for joining me for the third episode of the serial killer chronicles this is a serialized podcast which means you should listen to the episodes in order so, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes yet, please go do that now. I'll be here when you get back. Okay, let's snap, crackle pop. Part 3, Things We Lost in the Fire On February 18, 1902, Dr. Kellogg was on a train headed for home following a lecture series in California. Around midnight, the train stopped at Chicago's Central Station. Dr. Kellogg got off to walk around and stretch his legs for a bit, and he was approached by a reporter, which wasn't unusual. At first, Battle Creek is less than a couple hundred miles from Chicago, so Dr. Kellogg's celebrity was well-known in the Windy City. Dr. Kellogg, the reporter asked anxiously, are you going to rebuild? A bit confused, Dr. Kellogg responded, rebuild what? The reporter was stunned. He said, don't you know? The sanitarium burned down last night. Less than 24 hours earlier, night watchman William Hall was making his rounds at the San when he discovered a fire raging in the pharmacy's basement. At approximately 3.30 a.m. on February 18th, he sounded the alarm of Battle Creek Fire Station Number no. 2. Firefighters were on the scene within minutes, but flames were already exploding from the windows of the pharmacy in an attached bathhouse. The firefighters extinguished the fire at the small building quickly, but as they began to roll up their hoses and put their equipment away, they made a horrifying discovery. Just after 4 a.m., the ground began to rumble, and firefighters found themselves waist-deep in warm earth. The ground beneath their feet was literally melting. Because the fire wasn't contained to the pharmacy building. It was in the tunnels. Underground. How do you fight an underground fire? you don't. There were 307 guests at the San when it began to burn, many of them disabled and in wheelchairs. The staff worked calmly and quickly to get everyone out safely, and they did a phenomenal job, with one exception. 86-year-old Abner Case of Bath, New York, was asleep in his fourth-floor suite along with his wife and daughter when the fire broke out. He was being treated for chronic dyspepsia, or indigestion. The fire awoke Mrs. Case and her daughter, and they tried in vain to stir Mr. Case. He was disoriented, and he didn't quite grasp the severity of the situation. When his wife told them they had to go, he refused, insisting instead that he needed to kneel beside the bed to pray. As the fire roared closer, Mrs. Case and her daughter made the heartbreaking decision to leave Mr. Case behind. Once outside, both women were hysterical. Staff Dr. Howard Rand ran back inside in a last, desperate attempt to save Mr. Case. He found the confused man and he led him to an exit door, but right on the precipice of safety, Mr. Case ran back into the fire, presumably to retrieve the bag full of cash that was still in his room. He was never seen again. A single human bone, a fragment of Mr. Case's humerus, was found by san staff members a few weeks later. Aside from the death of Abner Case, injuries were few. Mrs. H.C. McDaniels broke her leg, jumping from a sixth-floor window to escape the flames. She landed on the rooftop of an adjoining building, and she was saved by a fireman with the coolest name possible, in the coolest way possible. Firefighter Laverne (laughs) Fonda—I don't know why I like that name, I just really like that name— Laverne Fonda threw Mrs. McDaniels over his shoulder, and he slid to the edge of the roof to a ladder— He delivered her to another fireman who helped her down to safety. He then went back and rescued Mr. McDaniels as well. Three firefighters were injured in the blaze, but none too seriously. The fire raged for hours and was seen as far away as Kalamazoo. In the light of day, the devastation was breathtaking. Nothing remained standing larger than a 10-foot section of wall here or there, and the sand was a gigantic building. It was all gone. When he was told of the fire by a reporter in Chicago, Dr. Kellogg remained stoic. We will rebuild everything, he confidently assured the reporter. But when he returned to his seat on the train, he collapsed, and he could barely hold back his tears. He later said he felt like his best friend had died. His life's work was gone. But by the time his train pulled into the Battle Creek station, Dr. Kellogg had already drawn up plans for a new building, a bigger, better fireproof sand. Before Dr. Kellogg could look to the future, though, the elephant in the room at present had to be addressed. What caused the fire at the sand? Partly owing to some questionable public statements he made following the fire, there were those who believed Dr. Kellogg himself was behind it. He once said, deep down in my heart, I'm glad the building has burned, because now we will build a better one. Another time, he said, I have been longing for a better building, but I assure you that I didn't set the old building on fire. So initially, there was no one accusing the doctor of setting the fire, but then he started running around, swearing up and down that he wasn't responsible. I'm glad it happened, but I didn't do it. And that's a little sketchy. The prevailing theory, though, is that Mother White and her Seventh-day Adventists were responsible for the fires. Notice I said fires. The sanitarium wasn't the first of Dr. Kellogg's buildings to burn, and it wouldn't be the last. While a rift had been festering between Dr. Kellogg and Mother White for years, it solidified into a full blown feud when he stole the sand from the church in 1897. A year later, on July 19, 1898, the sanitarium health food company burned to the ground under suspicious circumstances. Almost exactly two years after that, On july twenty first, nineteen hundred, the Sanitas Food Company was destroyed by a fire of unknown origin. After the sand itself burned, the eye of suspicion fell heavily upon Mother White and her devout followers. So when the offices of the Review and Herald Publishing House, which was owned by the Seventh day Adventists but operated by doctor Kellogg to publish all of his books, burned to the ground just ten months after the sand, it became a foregone conclusion that Mother White was to blame. There was no way all of these fires were a coincidence. Mother White had long voiced her opinion that the sand was getting too big for its britches and becoming less godlike. Well, the same was happening at the Review and Herald. What started out as a means for Mother White to publish her magazine and pamphlets had become the largest publishing house in Michigan, responsible for publishing, among other things, all of Dr. Kellogg's books. The Living Temple, which was released just months before the publishing house burned, was his most inflammatory work, and it actually resulted in accusations of heresy. So the fact that he used the Seventh-day Adventist publishing house to print it enraged Mother White. And then, a few months later, the Review and Herald building was gone. It should be mentioned that the Day of the Fire, coincidentally, The fire inspector had come through and inspected the building from top to bottom, and he found zero violations and zero fire hazards. Another possible motive for the fires, if they were indeed set by Mother White and her followers, was her belief that God did not mean for her people to settle in Battle Creek. As early as 1882, she spoke of a vision in which God warned her and her followers to scatter. She was worried that Battle Creek was turning into a Vatican City for Seventh-day Adventists, and it kind of was. The church's headquarters and its two largest enterprises, the San and the Review and Herald, were all located in Battle Creek. Mother White herself had left Battle Creek following her husband's death in 1881, and she settled in California around 1888. When the San burned, she suggested rebuilding in a different state, but Dr. Kellogg had veto power. When the Review and Herald burned, she relocated the publishing house to Washington, D.C., and with her gone, the sand out from under the church's thumb, and the publishing house gone, the SDA headquarters were relocated to Maryland, so it definitely seemed like the fires helped her achieve her goal of scattering her people. The most damning evidence, however, was a statement she made following the fire at the Review and Herald, when even some of her own followers began to question her. She expressed sadness over the loss of yet another SDA institution, but said, I have seen an angel standing with a sword as a fire stretched over Battle Creek. It seemed as if this sword of flame were turning first in one way and then another. Disaster seemed to follow because God was dishonored by the devising of men to exalt and glorify themselves. And I think we all know which men, or man, rather, she was talking about. Say what you will about visions and prophecies, but there had to be a degree of pride involved in Mother White's animosity toward Dr. Kellogg. She was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and now many of her followers had subscribed to the doctor's religion of biologic living instead. She brought her small publishing house to Battle Creek, and it was now being used to pump out the doctor's worldwide bestsellers, the content of which she vehemently disagreed with. The idea of a wellness institute had come to her in a vision, and Dr. Kellogg had taken it and turned it into something else entirely. She was no longer the star of the show. He was. It was widely reported that she told followers, Those buildings will burn. Dr. Kellogg has an imperious will that needs to be broken. The buildings did burn, but Dr. Kellogg's will was not broken. Immediately upon arriving back in Battle Creek following the fire at the Sand, he called an emergency meeting and unveiled his plans to rebuild. The church balked at the plan and the price tag that came with it. They refused to fund the new facility. But, technically, the church didn't own the Sand any longer. Not legally. The church and the Sand were still heavily intertwined, but officially they were separate entities, so the church had no say in the future of the Sand. They could withhold funding, and they did, but Dr. Kellogg had the autonomy to seek alternate funding sources. So he did. The SAN had the power to make or break a city, so there were other cities that wanted to house the new SAN, and they were willing to put up the capital to make it happen. When faced with the possibility of losing the SAN and the thousands of tourists it brought to town on a monthly basis, the city of Battle Creek put their money where their mouth was and they facilitated loans and donations to help Dr. Kellogg rebuild. But, before the new sanitarium could even open its doors, tragedy struck again. On May 18, 1903, the stables at the new facility were set ablaze, killing 13 horses and one charity patient. Less than two weeks later, on May thirty-first, nineteen 1903, the new and improved Battle Creek Sanitarium opened to the public. Despite the fact that they'd refused to help fund the new facility, the SDA Church still wanted a say in what went on at the san. To which Dr. Kellogg politely replied, no thank you. Uh, He probably wasn't actually very polite at all. He wasn't the nicest guy, but he he turned their suggestions down. If the original sanitarium was weird, the upgraded version was just straight up bonkers. It was basically a self-contained city. Made of brick and stone with marble and concrete flooring, Dr. Kellogg boasted that the new facility was the only absolutely fireproof institution of its sort in the world. The five-story, state-of-the-art building was comprised of six floors with 400 guest rooms and suites, the north wing for men and the south wing for women. The treatment rooms on the fifth and sixth floors were equipped to treat upwards of 1,000 patients a day. There were three treatment wings that sprouted from the back of the building, kind of like spikes, and those are still there. Uh, one was a gymnasium with mechanical horses and camels, mechanical kneading machines meant to stimulate the crippled colon. Different varieties of vibrating machines, which were not as fun as that sounds. Because remember, masturbation is self-pollution. And there were also a plethora of the mad doctor's various contraptions. The two other treatment wings were full of white-tiled pools and baths of all sorts. And lest we forget, a state-of-the-art Sanctum Santorum, or Enema Room. The new sanitarium offered over 200 different water treatments, including sprays, douches, and so many baths. A brass band played music throughout every meal, and every evening there was a grand march on the roof of the San where guests did aerobics and calisthenics. Everything at the San was top of the line and high class for its time, including the elaborate system Dr. Kellogg created for purifying and recirculating air, and the year-round indoor palm garden filled with exotic birds and butterflies from the doctor's own personal collection. Out of the ashes rose something grander than anyone could have envisioned when Mother White first opened the Western Health Reform Institute in 1867. But the city wasn't finished burning yet. The worst was yet to come. On November 10, 1907, after over a decade of feuding, Dr. Kellogg was officially excommunicated from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a move he'd seen coming for years. So Honestly, he was probably relieved. It was a weight off his shoulders, freeing him from the shackles of an authoritarian religion. He accused the church of trying to cripple and destroy the Battle Creek Sanitarium and every work with which I am connected. There was quotes around that. I I don't do voices, I'm sorry. Um, But that was a direct quote from the doctor. Dr. Kellogg loved children. Clearly, considering that he raised 42 of them over the years. By the 1880s, he was being asked to take in children at such a rate that he knew there was a need for an orphanage run by the SDA church, which at that time was still also running the SAN. Carolyn Haskell, a widow from Indiana who was staying at the SAN, donated $30,000 to build an orphanage in Battle Creek on the condition that it be named after her late husband and designated as a non denominational institution, open to all races. The Haskell Home for Orphans was dedicated on January 25, 1894. It, like the SAN and the publishing house, was run by the SDA Church. So when the doctor was excommunicated, so was the orphanage. Dr. Kellogg kept it running, though, much to Mother White's dismay. The gothic-style mansion was built to accommodate 150 orphans, but luckily, there were only 37 children staying at the orphanage the night it went up in flames. In the early morning hours of February 5, 1909, 15-year-old orphan Mary Armstrong, who was staying at the Haskell House with five of her 12 siblings, awoke to find the girls' dormitory filled with smoke. She could hear fire crackling from the floor below. With the stairs and fire escape both blocked by flames, Mary broke a window on the third floor. Down on the ground, she saw her 12-year-old brother James, who climbed up onto a shed and began yelling for the girls to jump down to him. Mary picked up her 5-year-old sister Pearl and tossed her out the window. James caught his little sister and he helped her to safety. More children followed. Once the younger girls were safe, the bigger girls began to jump. James could no longer catch them, but he did help them land safely to prevent breaking bones and serious injury. Mary kept order in the girls' dormitory, helping her bunkmates to safety until she was overcome by smoke and fire. She leapt from the window, missed the shed, and hit the ground. She was left with serious injuries to her face and head, including temporary blindness caused by severe blistering from burns. Unfortunately... Mary wasn't able to help everyone out before she had to jump herself. Twelve-year-old Cecil Coutant, who had lived in the orphanage since she was five, shook with terror as she stood in the window following Mary's dangerous fall. I'm afraid, she shrieked before disappearing from the window into the inferno as the floor beneath her collapsed, killing both her and 14-year-old Lena McKay of Battle Creek. Lena was a temporary guest at the Haskell house. Her family was on vacation in Florida, and she'd been left behind so that doctors could tend to an injured hand. Superintendent Rodney Owen and his wife Sarah lived at the Haskell home with the children. When they awoke to the presence of smoke, Rodney ran into the kitchen hoping the fire was contained and manageable, while Sarah gathered up a group of young boys and led them toward safety as they clung to her dress. Just as they reached the exit, she remembered that the orphanage had just taken in a six-week-old baby boy who was trapped in his crib. The smallest boys refused to leave her, so with them still hanging on to her, she made her way back inside. She rescued baby Donald and then ran down a burning staircase with two little boys trailing behind her. Only once she was outside safely and able to take a headcount did she realize that one was still missing. Eight-year-old George Goodnow the only black child at the orphanage, recently arrived from Chattanooga, Tennessee. No one recalled seeing him in the commotion, so it was thought that he either didn't wake up or perished trying to find his way out. The remains of Cecil, Lena, and Little George were all buried in the same grave at the Haskell Home Cemetery in Battle Creek. The source of the fire that took their lives was never determined. Initially, officials conceded that it was likely caused by arson, which was Dr. Kellogg's belief as well. But just a few days later, officials declared that there would be no investigation because they had no reason to believe it was anything other than a horrific accident. However, According to the February 6th edition of the 1909 Detroit Free Press, the Haskell House blaze was the 12th fire of a structure previously owned by or connected to the Seventh day Adventists in as many years. Of those, eight were of unknown origin, two were determined to be arson, and two were ruled accidental. A total of five people perished in the West End fires, as they became known the three children at the orphanage, Abner Case in the Sanitarium fire, and the patient killed in the Stable fire at the Sanitarium whose name I could not find anywhere. Fire Chief Weeks, who unsuccessfully fought all of the West End fires, once told the church, there is something strange about your SDA fires. Something strange indeed, and it wasn't God and his fire sword, I will tell you that much. Whether it was Mother White and her followers, or just plain old karma, fire seemed to have it out for Dr. Kellogg, but he never let the tragedies overcome him. It was something else entirely that brought him to his knees. When he rebuilt the sand, he took out a lot of loans, and he overextended himself quite a bit, believing that his clients, the millionaires and the 20th century elite, would always be swimming in cash for things like yogurt enemas and vibrating chairs but the stock market crash of 1929 hit his clientele particularly hard, and the Sand went bankrupt in 1933. But at least Dr. Kellogg still had a serial empire, right? In the next episode, we'll talk about the bizarre serial gold rush in Battle Creek and the fight to the death between the Kellogg brothers for the right to use the family name. My sources for today's episode were, once again, Howard Markle's book, The Kelloggs, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, An article written by Arthur L. White for the Chan Shun Centennial Library, titled Ellen White, A Brief Biography. The website, Ellen G. White Writings. An article written by Nick Buckley for the Battle Creek Inquirer, titled, Three Children Died When the Haskell Home Orphanage Burned in 1909, Their Grave is Still Unmarked. That's a really long title for an article. The website, non-egw.org the website MyGenWeb.org, Wikipedia, Find a grave, and Newspapers.com, as always. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both The Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find the Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. Until then, stay nifty, Rice Krispie.